Climate Law Matters, Episode 1, Interview with Stephen Troman's KC, Part 1. Hello listener, welcome to the very first episode of our podcast, Climate Law Matters. My name is Steph David and I specialise in environmental and climate change cases. I am joined by Stephen Troman's KC, who is a preeminent silk in environmental law, Indeed, he is referred to in the directories as Mr. Environment. We are both barristers at 39 Essex Chambers. Hello, Stephanie. So uh, what are we doing today? Through this podcast, we intend to explore the many policy, scientific and legal developments directed at addressing climate change. We aim to assist busy practitioners by providing short, punchy interviews with the leaders in their fields to explain, first, the key developments as they see them, and second, the role for litigation and regulation in those developments, including any legal barriers to change. With each podcast, we will publish links to useful resources on regulatory guidance, for example, and a few bullet points setting out the key issues arising. Um, Today, I'm very excited to interview Stephen about how he sees the role of the law in meeting the greatest challenge of our time. We're going to start with public law challenges before considering other legal developments. Stephen, Thank you so much for agreeing to share your thoughts. To start, do you mind telling the listener a little bit about your career and your expertise in this area? Yes, uh, certainly. In fact, I've had a variety of careers, uh, academic lawyer, solicitor, and then most recently as a barrister and KC. Environment's always been a big part of my career. But when I started out, in fact, climate change wasn't really on the, the radar screen It wasn't regarded by lawyers, I think, as the greatest challenge of our time, as you put it earlier. The greatest challenge was probably at that point acid rain, actually, which was uh, dealt with quite effectively. And also the hole in the ozone layer uh, from CFCs, which also was dealt with very effectively by international law. So climate change, I think, wasn't really uh, very much thought of by environmental lawyers, probably until 1990 or so. And even then, didn't, I think, form a huge part of most lawyers' practices. It was much more to do with traditional pollution control. But clearly, as the issue has become more pressing, the law has developed and lawyers' work has developed with it. So increasingly, uh, more and more of my work has centred around climate change um, in various ways, uh, energy, uh, nuclear law, renewables, and also, of course, what we're going to discuss today, public law challenges. And Stephen, so which case are you most proud of? If we take um, my um, uh, career overall, it's not actually a climate change case. The, um, The case I remember most fondly, really, is a case on straightforward nuisance called Bar and Biffa, where I was acting for a group of local residents who were affected by a landfill site, which was making their lives a misery through odours. And the law had gone very wrong with a first instance decision uh, by Mr Justice Coulson, who had dismissed their claim, I thought on an extremely wrong legal basis. And I was brought in to go to the, the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal accepted our arguments and set the law back on the right track. 
and in the process uh, gave those affected individuals a remedy against the landfill company. So that was a satisfying case on very many levels, I think. Uh, it's the one I'd like engraved on my tombstone, <laughs> I think, if, um, if I'm allowed to do that. I mean, certainly private uses in particular is a very interesting area, and I think it's something we'll come back to in the context of climate change. Um, but as I say, just focusing at the moment on the kind of public law challenges, um, I think when you think about addressing climate change, there tend to be sort of two principal objectives, don't there? Um, the first is reducing emissions, and the second is building resilience. Um, if we focus on reducing emissions at the national level, um, as our listener may know, Mr. Justice Holgate gave judgment in a landmark case last July in which he found the government's net zero strategy was unlawful. Um, the government did not appeal, and on the 30th of March of this year, dubbed as Green Day, it published its revised strategy. Um, so what do you think of the new plan? I think my views on it are mixed, not entirely favourable, probably, to put it in, in a nutshell. I think it's relevant, probably, to look at why version one was found to be unlawful by Mr Justice Holgate. Uh, as We'll come back to this, but as with many climate change cases... Uh, the success was very limited. Most of the grounds failed, but they, they did gain traction with the judge on one particular submission. And I think if you look at paragraph 211 of the, the judgment, then the judge says that the quantification of the effect of individual policies was an obviously material consideration on which, as a matter of law, um, information had to be provided by the minister to enable him to discharge his statutory functions lawfully by taking that into account. So quantification, mainly material, as a matter of law, has to be taken into account. And secondly, the um, risk to the delivery of individual policies and the targets, the judge said, is, quotes, obviously material. So I think two, two things come out of that. Um, one is you can't just set out a whole load of policies and say, oh, yes, we think that's going to achieve it. You do have to quantify how all those policies are going to contribute to getting to where you need to get. And you do have to take account of, which means, first of all, identifying the risk to the delivery of those individual policies. Now, I have a bit of a thing about government policy generally in, in this area, not specifically what was produced on Green Day. Um, often government policy these days to me, generally reads like a bit of a PR exercise rather than a realistic plan. Government is very fond of telling us all the great things they're doing, but not so great at telling us how they're actually going to get from A to B. And it may now be slightly better than under the uh, boosterism of uh, Boris Johnson's prime ministership. But it's, if I'm honest, probably not that much better. So if we take, for example, page 17 of the, the plan, the government there says, we welcome the Committee on Climate Change's view and new evidence from the independent review of net zero that this pathway represents a clear and credible range for emissions reductions in each sector of the economy. The figure shows emissions reductions based on central assumptions, but these shouldn't be viewed as predictions or targets. Uh, precise emission savings ultimately contributed by each sector are likely to change. So the government takes comfort from the fact 
fact that this has been looked at by the Committee on Climate Change and the Independent Review on Net Zero. Obviously, the fact that they've looked at it does give some comfort, but it doesn't discharge in itself the government's obligations. But we we then move on from that statement and look at pages 18 and 19 as to how the decarbonisation goals are to be delivered. You have a highlights from the last 18 months as to what's been done since the previous defective plan. And you can really see how little the expenditure is and how far there is to go. If you compare it with the US Inflation Reduction Act 2022, we're obviously there talking hundreds of billions of dollars. I know America is a much bigger country, but that gives a feel for the scale of what's required. I don't think we get from this plan really an acknowledgement or feel of the scale of what's required. So having said that, um, I do recognise that what we've got is but part of a whole suite of documents and consultations, many of which we'll no doubt come on to looking at in future podcasts, and they do include a specific statutory carbon budget delivery plan. So I don't want to be too harsh on the government, but I do. I generally feel um, that there's a series of headlines, but um, still I'm afraid uh, a lack of clear planning as to how you're going to get where you need to get in terms of net zero. Yeah, no, I can, I can see that entirely. Um, I guess the question for many practitioners listening to this podcast will be what the risks are of a further legal challenge. Um, I've certainly seen news reports to the effect that Friends of the Earth has sent a pre-action protocol letter, um, but as it stands, obviously, there's limited publicly available information. Um, so it's kind of just building up on what you said before in respect to the net zero case. We start with Section 13 of the Climate Change Act, um, which I'm sure our listener is familiar with, but essentially it's a duty on the Secretary of State to prepare proposals and policies as they consider will enable the carbon budgets to be met. Um, and as you say, Stephen, I mean, the big question here really is whether that suite of policies set out in the over 2,000 pages worth of documents actually does discharge that obligation. Um, some people may be aware of the carbon budget delivery plan, which you mentioned before. Um, in that particular document, at table one, uh, the government set out the total projected emissions against carbon budgets four to six, and it specifically and expressly acknowledged there will be a deficit against the sixth carbon budget. Yes. So that obviously came out in the first net zero case, wasn't it? That there was a, a percentage that just hadn't been accounted for. Um, so is that a, a complete own goal? Does that in itself make it unlawful, um, considering the net zero case? So in terms of what Mr. Hol- uh, Mr. Justice Holgate actually found, I mean, ultimately, he did give uh, the government some discretion as to how it would satisfy itself that the carbon budgets would be met. Um, essentially, what he said was there's no obligation on the Secretary of State to be satisfied by quantitative analysis that measures with quantifiable effects will enable at least 100% of the emissions reductions required by the carbon budgets to be achieved. That's at paragraph 177. Mm. Because he acknowledged that the exercise inevitably involves a predictive assessment into the future and a significant level of uncertainty. So it was open to the Secretary of State to rely upon unquantified policies 
provided they, i.e. the Secretary of State, are satisfied that meeting the shortfall by qualitative analysis is demonstrated with sufficient cogency. So ultimately, it's a matter of judgment for the Secretary of State. And certainly my reading of the carbon budget delivery plan is that reasoning really is adopted in the plan. Uh, there are repeated references to kind of the inherent uncertainties in the forecasting and modelling, um, most obviously with the references to systemic feedback effects. Yes. Well, I think that's that's very fair comment. Um, I would um, just highlight one or two one or two other uh, things which stand out for me. So, paragraph twenty one, the the government says we're taking a market led approach to developing and deploying the technological shifts required to meet net zero. So, I think we know what a number of those technological shifts are going to be. Obviously, we have to decarbonize the electricity supply. We have to have huge investment in infrastructure needed to transmit the electricity. And for things like electric vehicles, we obviously need very significant improvements in the infrastructure for charging the vehicles the vehicles up. And so the government says we're taking a market-led approach to developing those technological shifts. And they say, this means it is very likely that some proposals or policies will outperform expectations. Now, that seems to me a quite extraordinary assumption because it's market-led. It's going to outperform expectations. Why would you assume that? Experience suggests quite strongly that market-led approaches may well fail or underperform. They may need government support if they're going to perform and deliver. And I think that that's certainly true of a lot of these technological changes here. So that, that I think, is a big problem for the government. Secondly, I think it's worth commenting on paragraph 23 of, of the, the plan. And that seems to me to um, emphasise a couple of points. Firstly, the list of proposals and policies that they set out for delivery is necessarily a snapshot of the current plan. And the future circumstances may change. Um, they will review and adapt the proposals and policies in that regard. Well, that goes without saying. Any plan must be kept under, under review, may need to be adapted and modified. Secondly, some of the measures relied upon, they say, are proposals at an early stage of development that may not be required at all if we are overachieving in meeting carbon budgets. And they say that the mechanisms for implementing the proposals will depend upon technological developments, societal changes, stakeholder views, future spending arrangements, and broader policy developments. Well, that's quite a list of things that could go wrong, I think, isn't it? And the inclusion of proposals and policies at an early stage of development that require further design and development ensures we don't risk curtailing scientific and technological development through overprescription. Again, I think that's, that's fair enough. One needs to, to allow for new technologies coming coming on stream, which may be potentially game changers. So that seems okay uh, so far as it goes. But overall, um, I have to take issue with, with that approach. The reason I take issue with it is this. We're facing a climate crisis. We all know that. We have hard targets that must be achieved. These are not optional things. They have to be achieved. There isn't any leeway in the time to do so. The time limits that apply are extremely stringent and demanding. 
And a government can't assume that these things can just be made up as you go along. You can't start off with some tentative proposals and hope that they are all going to firm up and come right. So I would say the government needs to be planning for the worst and making proper assumptions on risk as to things that might go wrong with this development strategy. If, if it turns out better, well, OK, all well and good. But any engineer, I think, on a project would tell you that you, you plan and you design for the worst. You hope for the best. And if you get the best or better than the worst, then that's a, a bonus. But I would very much query whether, for instance, new technology is going to be such a game changer over the very short timescales concerned. We're not talking many decades, are we? We're talking very short time periods. And uh, I'm not confident, and I'm not sure the government is really confident, that the technology is actually going to deliver. And I think some bits of the delivery plan are frankly just pure uh, you know, Pollyanna. So paragraph 22 says consumer behaviour, future trends and future economic context will all play a, a huge role in meeting carbon budgets and they will be variable. And then they say, for example, in recent years, the uptake of electric vehicles has consistently exceeded expectations. Well, that's not what I read in the papers. I must say, uh, it seems to me that, you know, OK, electric vehicles are being taken up, but the public is very suspicious of taking them up with lack of charging infrastructure, the cost of those vehicles, cost of electricity, uh, etc. So I think there's a huge element of optimism built in here and faith that the public is going to support all this. I think unless the government makes this possible for people, um, there could be a huge public voter backlash to it, which could derail the whole thing. And I, I just don't think that those those points are really being thought through or addressed uh, explicitly in this document. Picking up one point in relation to risk of delivery in respect of individual policies, I mean, obviously that was a material consideration according to Mr Justice Holgate. And as you say, there's kind of cause for concern in respect of how the government has approached it in net zero um, 2.0. So that is a difficult issue because it is an inherently technical point, um, which we will come back to. It's how you can go about monitoring and managing delivery risks and monitoring and ma uh, measuring the impact that these policies will have on greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so you are, we're both aware of the challenges around expert evidence and expert analysis in the context of judicial review proceedings. Um, the other point which sprung to mind when I was looking through these documents is in respect of um, what the minister personally knew about these issues. Um, so the information that would have been included in the ministerial briefings, because ultimately that really was a key issue in the litigation last year. But of course, at the moment, a lot of those briefings were in the public domain. So I assume it's sort of, you know, watch this space really. Looking at the new plan, I would question whether there has been adequate risk assessment as a material consideration. Now, it's going to be, I think, very difficult to make out a case on adequacy of risk assessment to a, a judge in the administrative court. Uh, but uh, Mr Justice Holgate did say that risk of non-delivery or shortfall in delivery 
is plainly a material consideration. So one can't entirely rule that out as a, a legal flaw in the uh, in the plan. Um, so um, I'm wondering whether that's Stephanie may be an appropriate point to bring this initial podcast to a a, a halt, and we can return in uh, another session to judicial review generally and the prospects that has of holding governments to account on climate change. So uh, shall we um, say goodbye at this point uh, and then we will return to the fray on another occasion. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks. Goodbye. Goodbye.